Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, even as we sang this morning uh, that we want you first, Lord, we've come in here, we brought hearts that, that are perhaps weighed down with sorrows or weighed down with temptation or um, just, you know, idolatrous and looking all different directions, and we just pray, Lord, that you would realign our hearts this morning, and that we would see that you are a treasure, you are a reward, and we'd want you first, that we would seek you because you are the best. You are the best being. Your presence is fullness of joy, and we pray that you would give that to us this morning. And we also pray, Lord, this morning, as as I'm preaching the word, Lord, that you would come, your spirit would come and aliven hearts, aliven hearts to know you perhaps for the first time, or to to be uh, re-enlivened to you and who you are. And Lord, as we we look at the story of Elijah, we remember when he put out the stone altar and he put the the bowl down and and, and then even put water over it and then prayed for for you to send uh, fire from heaven, Lord. That's what we're asking this morning. We have assembled this place such as it is, and um, we put forward your word, Lord, and we've covered this with, with the water of our own distractions and, and sin and our own inabilities. And Lord, now we pray for you to come and, and bring fire, Lord. We pray that you would do the thing that only you can do in our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we've been in a series in Old Testament, those of you guys who have been here know, but it's Old Testament Family Reunion, and we're looking through the Old Testament, we're looking at our spiritual ancestors that lived before the time of Christ. And this morning we're going to look at the prophet Elijah. So if you want to turn to 1 Kings 19, that's where we'll be. And as we're at this Old Testament Family Reunion and we meet Elijah, what we find is uh, is that depression runs in our spiritual family. Turns out that with Christians, that, that there's a, a depression that runs in our family. And we see that throughout Scripture, really. We see that with um, people like Moses uh, had a time of depression. We see David, quite evidently. Elijah, we see it with Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, we despaired of life itself. This is something that runs in our spiritual family. And what's great about the Bible is the Bible destigmatizes depression. It destigmatizes depression by showing all of these people that, that wrestled with this and yet knew the Lord. It also, if you look in the Psalms, you see that there's, there's whole songs that are songs of lament. They're songs of depression, the Psalm 42 and 43 and many others that are songs of depression. And what's amazing about that is the Old Testament people, as they gathered to worship, they would periodically all together sing a song of depression. Isn't that great? And it's like, okay, we're going to do, you know, song number 42. Okay, everybody, nice and sad. You know, like, because a lot of times we feel like we have to be upbeat and stuff in worship. And, and the Psalms show us that, that depression is a common thing amongst God's people. And um, I'm really excited to look at it this morning because we're going we're gonna to see that. We look through church history, see you guys like Martin Luther. We see people like uh, William Cooper, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, big time dealt with great depression. These are all people that knew the Lord or were greatly used by the Lord. But, I mean, like Spurgeon, for example, there were weeks and months that he couldn't even preach because he was so, you know, undone with his depression. They would send him away to try and recuperate. He'd come back, and he'd try, and then he couldn't, and he'd go back. Over and over again, he, he wrestled with depression. And so this morning, we're going to look at the life of Elijah in chapter 19, and we're going to first look at what can we learn about depression from Elijah's depression here. And then we're going to look at how the Lord meets Elijah in his depression. And I love that part. So look at um, 1 Kings 19, verse 1, and it says this. 
Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judea, and left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under the broom tree. Um, if this is the only chapter that we had about Elijah's life, we would think Elijah's life was pretty bleak. You know, we would think that uh, he had a bleak life with no success, and he had never seen God work in his life, and he had no blessings from the Lord. And that's certainly how he sees it now, but it's not true, guys. That's not Elijah's life. It's not true. And that shows us, first of all, that depression is a perception problem. Depression is a perception problem. In fact, um, his life was just the opposite. You can see all the great things God had done in his life and all the ways that God had blessed Elijah. We can see that in chapter 17 and 18. If you start in 17, Elijah stands up boldly to King Ahab. King Ahab and Jezebel had decided to make Baal worship the official religion of Israel, which is insane. I mean, a country founded by God himself, that, that Baal worship would become the official religion for these, for these people. And Elijah stands up to him and he tells him, you are the problem here. And then he prays that it won't rain. And it does it doesn't rain for three and a half years. I mean, this is amazing. He prays it won't rain. It doesn't rain for three and a half years. And Elijah weathers the storm, right, and in this little brook area. And it says that the Lord commanded ravens to feed him, which is amazing. Hopefully they weren't feeding him the typical raven fare, you know. But they would come and they would drop food to him and he would drink out of the brook and he was fed by ravens. I mean, this guy had a good life, right? This is amazing. And then as the brook dried up, he went and enjoyed hospitality from the widow of Zarephath. And he's with her, and she's like, hey, I don't have any flour, I don't have any oil. God makes it so that her, her supply of oil and flour, the jars, they never run out. Um, a little bit later, her, her son unexpectedly dies. Elijah raises him from the dead. In chapter 18, Elijah stands up again to King Ahab and challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel, right? So they put up two altars. They put a, a bull on each one. And then he says, you know, whichever God will call down fire from heaven, that's the true God. This is pretty simple. We'll just handle it right here. And so the prophets of Baal are praying, and they're, they're, they're trying to cajole Baal to send down fire. They're cutting themselves all day long. Nothing happens, right? And Elijah has a good time kind of ridiculing them during the process, right? Hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom, or maybe he's sleeping, or maybe he's on a trip. You know, he kind of messes with them the whole time. And then Elijah just simply prays. Fire comes down from heaven, showing that God is a true God. It not only eats up the bull, but like the stone and everything um, get eaten up. The people realize that, wow, the Lord is the true God, and they, they slaughter all the prophets of Baal. And then Elijah prays, and for the first time in three and a half years, it rains. It just starts pouring, right? King Ahab gets in his chariot, and he's going to run home, tell his wife what happened, right? And it's so funny because he's going on his chariot ride back, you know, 18 miles. What does he see? What does he see near the rearview mirror? Elijah. He's like booking it. It passes him and runs all the way down to Jezreel, which is the capital, and beat him there. Elijah had a pretty good life. You know, like there's some serious blessing from the Lord, right? And that's why Elijah's sadness here doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, some commentators have said even that, you know, it's just bad editing. You know, you took a story of his high here. And then you put it right next to a story of his low. And, of course, that can never happen. So these have been spliced together wrong. 
Okay, these are people that don't deal with depression because <laughs> this is exactly how it works, right? And so depression is a perception problem. It's a sadness that doesn't make sense. It's a darkness that's out of proportion to our circumstances. And that's why I don't include Job when I think of depression because Job was dealing with circumstances. His sadness made total sense. Elijah's sadness here doesn't make sense. It's a causeless sorrow. Um, Charles Spurgeon experienced this kind of thing. He was a preacher in the 1800s, and he said this, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I wept for. You ever been there? I've been there. I deal with something like that every maybe month, six weeks, something like that. I don't cry because my tear ducts are apparently fused close, but, um, but inside, that same kind of sadness. But um, it's a causeless depression. It's something that hits you like a wave. All of a sudden, you're just knocked off balance. And, uh, it, and Elijah had that. Elijah doesn't see the good that God's done in his life or is going to do in his life. All he sees is his sorrow. If Elijah were to make a list of pros and cons of his life, it's all cons. There's no pros. He can't see them. Everything's gone dark. He's, he's like a pilot flying a plane in a storm, and it's dark, and it's stormy, and his instruments go out. And suddenly he has no understanding of, of what's good and what's not. You can see that in the mantra he says to the Lord. Twice he repeats this to the Lord in verse 10. He says... I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Do you see some Elijah's faulty perceptions in what he says? He says this twice. Uh, depression, firstly, from that. Depression only tells us half the story, right? Because that's stuff that Elijah said. It's true. Some of it. The last part's not true. But the thing about the prophets being killed and all that, it's true, but it's only half the story, right? You know, those problems are real, but they're only half the story. I don't think what Elijah says in verse 10 is an accurate reporting of his life, is it? Is it an accurate reporting of chapter 17, 18, and 19? No. All he sees is the dark parts. You know, Elijah's saying, you know, I did my part and nothing happened. And it's like, really, Elijah? But what about the thing on the caramel and the altar and the fire from the sky? Like, that's a pretty big deal. He's like, yeah, but a lot of good that did. He doesn't see it. Depression only tells us half the story, the sad half. Depression tells us we're alone. Look at verse 10. He says, I, even I only, am left. This I and my is repeated four times in that verse. Depression makes our world small. It makes us turn in on ourselves. It makes us just think about our inner life and our inner emotions, and, and, and it makes us feel alone. You can see how alone he feels. Um, Elijah feels alone and burdened. He says, I'm the only one left. No one can help. And you know what else he feels? Like he's letting everybody down. You can see that where he says, I'm no better than my father's, right? There's this sense of failure. There's this sense of just being in despair where no one can help him and he can't be a help to anyone else. He's let everybody down. You know, guys, there was a promise in Deuteronomy that to, to Moses, through Moses, that one day a prophet would come that was greater than Moses and he would turn the hearts of the people back. You know what Elijah's doing here? He's going, I'm apparently not that guy, Right? He's like, I'm no better than my father's. I haven't been able to accomplish anything here, right? He feels so guilty for the way he's failed people, but you know what else? He just can't do it anymore. He's just like, I wasn't able to solve the problem, and I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. Uh, depression also tells us that our darkness won't ever end. Look at verse 10. He says, 
and, and they seek my life to take it away. Depression convinces us that, that depression will never end, that this darkness will never end. It's, it, it's, it's like our future evaporates before us like a mirage, right? It's like this dark feeling of depression and darkness. It comes in and it robs us of both our past and our future because when depression rolls in, you can't see the faithfulness of God in the past. You can see that with him now. You can't see the faithfulness of God in the past. And so he's lost to the past, and he's losing his future too because he can't think of how God will possibly be faithful to him in the future. And his present is so bleak that it makes sense what he says in verse 4. It's enough now, Lord. Take my life away. Now, Elijah doesn't presume that he has the right to take his own life, but he asks God to take it. And he's actually in a line of people, godly people, who have asked God to kill him. Job did that, Moses did that, Jonah did that, Jeremiah did that. Does that amaze you? That that many people have been used greatly by God, have told God, just kill me. They've come to that place. And so he he doesn't presume he's got the right to, but he asks God to. Guys, depression is a perception problem. It attacks our ability to see reality. And Elijah's life shows, too, that it attacks suddenly and mysteriously. You know, when commentators say, oh, it's bad editing because there's no way that he could go from this to this, it just shows they've never dealt with depression, right? If you're like me and you battle depression, you know exactly how this is. You, you relate totally to how suddenly and mysteriously this attacks him. I mean, Elijah has just enjoyed an enormous victory on Mount Carmel, and then he struck down with depression in verse 2. Take a look at it. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, one of the dead prophets of Baal. By this time tomorrow, then he arose and was afraid and ran for his life. What happened here? You know, um, What's going on here? Well, there's, certainly there's some risk factors here, right? Elijah is tired, right? And that's a, definitely a risk factor. Elijah is isolated. You can see that. He goes down to Beersheba, and then he gets rid of his servant, you know, and he goes totally alone for another day into the wilderness. He's definitely under spiritual attack, and we'll look at that in just a little bit. He's feeling a sense of guilt for how he's not measured up to what he believes God had for him to do. Isn't it amazing how he says, I'm no better than my father's? It's like, who said he had to be, right? He's got this pressure on himself that he's not living up to. And he just had a mountaintop experience, didn't he? Quite literally, on Mount Carmel. In this mountaintop experience, things are going great, and then suddenly he's under attack. He's got dashed expectations. Apparently, Elijah had expected this, that there's this victory on Mount Carmel. The people see that that the Lord really is the true God. Baal's nothing. Why is he running to Jezreel, the capital? Why would he be going right there? He probably thinks either Ahab and Jezebel are going to repent, or he thinks that the people are going to overthrow him. But somehow, this victory, surely, I mean, we've made it so clear that God's a true God. Certainly, the whole nation's going to turn, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, right? He gets this death threat from Jezebel, and no one really seems to care about it. There's no revolt. There's no revival of the nation. And suddenly, he just can't do it anymore. Verse 3, he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. Um, If you struggle with depression, you know how suddenly and mysteriously this can happen. You can be on Mount Carmel one moment and Beersheba the next, and it can happen in a moment, in a second. Right? You're going along fine. You're dealing with life's challenges. And I don't want to say a death threat from Jezebel is nothing, but it's nothing for this guy. They've hated him, want him dead for a really long time, for years. This is nothing new. Jezebel's like, I'm going to kill you. It's like, okay, well, like you said that before, right? Why does this trip him up now? You know, why after he's dealing with life challenges so well, all of a sudden, without warning, the courage and the joy just drops right out of the bottom. You guys ever experienced that? 
going along fine, and then it just drops out the bottom. It's like a trap door. It's like, it's like you're descending down some dark stairs, and a step's missing, and you fall. All of a sudden, Elijah just gets spinning in fear, and he descends into darkness, and, and there seems to be nothing he can do about it. It's like this thick fog has rolled in, and all he sees is dark, and he can't find his way out, and he thinks it's always going to be this way, and there's no way out of this, and so he asks to die. You been there? Elijah was there. I've been there. How did the Lord meet Elijah in his darkness, though? This is really fun. It's really cool to watch God meet Elijah in his darkness because he doesn't do all the things we would do. And I think it's really good to look at this and how he meets him in his darkness because if you're a person that deals with darkness, if you deal with depression, the cool thing about looking at this story is you'll see the way that the Lord is trying to meet you in your life and you won't resist help. You know, there's that famous parable of the, the guy in the flood, you know, who's at his house and there's a flood coming and the, the FEMA trucks come or whatever. And they're like, come on, come on, get your stuff, get your pets, let's go. And he's like, no, 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 the Lord will save me. And the water rises up to his porch and the boat comes, says, hey, get in here, get your pets and everything, get out, we'll, we'll get you out of here. And he goes, the Lord will save me. And he's on the roof and the helicopter comes and like, get in the basket and we'll take you. The Lord will save me. And then what happens? He dies, right? And he ends up in heaven. He's like, Lord, I prayed to you. I asked you to save me. You didn't come through for me, right? And the Lord's like, well, I sent a truck and a boat and a helicopter, and you resisted me at every point, right? We can be like that way in depression, too, that he's reaching out to us, and we're resisting his help. And so what we're going to see as we look in here is how the Lord reaches out to us in our darkness. And it's also going to help us, guys, when we want to help others, as we're a body, we're to carry one another's burdens. And as we see how the Lord reaches out to Elijah, we can see how we ought to reach out to those in our midst that are dealing with these things. And so how does the Lord meet Elijah in his darkness? First one is, the Lord meets Elijah in his darkness with a walk. I love this. He walks with him. I love it. Because Elijah, God doesn't look at Elijah in depression as something that needs a quick fix. We're like that. We're impatient. Somebody's miserable. i got to fix them, Right? God doesn't look at it that way. Uh, depression is not a quick fix. It's a journey. The Lord has something to share with Elijah in this darkness, and he's not going to rush it. The Lord is committed to walking with Elijah until the darkness lifts. And you see a, a lot of walking in these first eight verses. And it all seems to be Elijah's idea. The Lord's not telling him to go these places. The Lord tells him to go somewhere in verse 15. The first eight verses seems to be Elijah just wandering around, right? First, he goes from Jezreel to Beersheba when he first gets the scary news and he runs for his life. He goes 100 miles from the north to the south. He's trying to get as far away as possible. He even goes down into Judea. At that point in 1 Kings, the, the nation separated in two places. He's actually kind of going into another country at that point. Goes as far as he can get. Probably took about a week, about six days to get down there. Drops off his servant, goes another day into the wilderness. And then he goes after that, he goes from Beersheba to Mount Horeb. That's 200 miles. He takes a long time, 40 days to do this, kind of wandering around, right? So this guy has over a seven-week period, roughly. He's gone 300 miles on foot. This guy's wandering around. He looks like he's wandering around like a crazy person, right? To an outside observer, they're like, what is wrong with this guy? He's definitely lost it. He's just wandering and walking all over the place. But guys, the Lord is committed to walking with Elijah until the darkness lifts. The Lord's like, okay, we're going to walk. I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you for seven weeks. I'm going to walk with you for 300 miles. Everywhere Elijah wanders, the Lord's there. He keeps popping up. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? You know, keeps popping up to him over and over again. Isn't that kind of the Lord? 
And we have a faithful friend in the Lord that is, we're in this darkness and we're wandering, we feel so alone that he's following us everywhere, whether we recognize it or not. To an outside observer, it looks like Elijah's wandering is just aimless. He probably felt like it was aimless. So I'll go here, I'll go there. It's not a really reasonable route, you know. It goes down and he goes over. I mean, he's going all over the place. But it's not aimless, guys, because the Lord's walking with him and the Lord has an aim for this. He's not aimless. The Lord has a plan to meet him. The Lord, and it's so cool because the Lord doesn't treat Elijah as a problem to be fixed, but a friend to be walked with. And I think we could learn a lot from that. A lot of times, uh, family members and people that deal with depression get really frustrated with them. They get frustrated with themselves because they want to fix them. And somebody's in darkness and they're in darkness for days or weeks or months or whatever. And eventually, you could be like, just, okay, enough already. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? You know, that kind of a thing. But, um, but they can't do that. And, and the cool thing is, is that the Lord doesn't treat Elijah as a problem to be fixed, but a friend to be walked with. And really all the Lord's asking for you is to walk with that person. You're not called to fix them, but you're called to walk with them. And so that's what we see here. And it's like, it's like the Lord's walking with this person that's kind of temporarily blind until he starts to see. Okay, what are you seeing now? What are you seeing now? What are you seeing now? And so that's what we're called to do as well. The Lord's like, okay, Elijah, let's just walk together until you start to see. So the Lord met Elijah with a walk. Secondly, the Lord met Elijah in, the, in his darkness with bread. This is great. Verse 5. And he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot coals and a jar of water. This cake's probably bread. Don't get too excited. And he ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him, saying, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. I love this. When, when God sends an angel... God sends an angel to help him. And this highlights the spiritual warfare that's going on here because there's an angel here. That Hebrew word for angel is the word just means messenger, just like in the New Testament. It means messenger, right? And what's interesting is there's two messengers in this chapter, right? There was the messenger from Jezebel in verse 2 that gave the news, the thing that actually sent him spinning in the first place. And now there's this angel from the Lord. So he's heard from an, an angel of the enemy, a messenger of the enemy. And now God's going to come in and bring a message for him as well. You can see the spiritual warfare in that. Elijah has, has listened to the enemy. Now he's going to listen to the Lord over time here. And so what does the Lord do when, to first engage this depressed man? Okay, so he's walking with him, and the first thing he does to engage him, what does he do? Does he give him a lecture? You tell him, like, Christians shouldn't be like this. You call yourself a Christian? Why are you doing this? Christians shouldn't be depressed. Like, oh, really? Let me give you a list, you know? Um, does he give him a pep talk? Like, I'm just going to give you a really encouraging talk, and then you're going to be good. And if you're not, I'm going to be frustrated with you, because I gave you a really encouraging pep talk. Now, does he give him a stern talking to? You've got an important job to do here, man. You can't just be hanging out in caves and stuff, right? No. What does he do? He touches him, and he gives him bread. Look at verse 5. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and I love this, and behold, <laughs> there was bread, right? I love that. He's excited about it. There was bread. Guys, the, there's fresh bread. I want to say to you, don't underestimate the value of hospitality and sharing a meal with somebody. There's great power in that. And I know for some of you guys, you're like, you know, that maybe that doesn't seem spiritual enough to you. Let me put it this way. When the Lord sent an angel to meet Elijah in his darkness, the angel went like, okay, what should I do here? I'll bake him bread. 
Okay, like that was the angel's best idea, okay? And so we shouldn't move past that too quickly. Um, that's what people need, is they, they need hospitality. They need bread, right? Elijah isn't thinking straight, and we might be tempted to immediately shake him and tell him all the ways he's not thinking straight, but the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't start there. He, he doesn't try to make a quick fix of Elijah. He's there to meet him in his darkness. His purposes are not going to be rushed. He starts with a touch and with a meal. And you know, guys, uh, those of you who suffer from depression, you know that the Lord often meets us in our darkness through common grace, through the goodness of creation, through things he's created, things like, you know, the beauty of a sunset or a tree or the beauty of clouds or a mountain or, or birds or a beach, right? Um, some, one of the most common places he'd meet me is in, a, in a, just a good book. And I'm not talking a book that's like seven steps to fighting depression, no. I'm talking about like a fiction book. You know, a good book that it draws me in a story, a beautiful thing of God's common grace draws me in a story, draws me out of myself so I can focus on something else, something beautiful. Um, a conversation with a friend, um, exercise, sleep. I mean, he's getting sleep here, right? Coffee, great gift from God, very mood-altering at times. Um, art, either doing it or looking at it. Um, music, I've been amazed by the power of music over and over again to readjust my brain chemistry. And um, these are things that are common grace of God. Don't miss God reaching out to you in common grace things. It's not always going to be a Bible verse. Sometimes it's going to be like, you come, you wake up, you look at the sky, and you're like, I've never noticed how it looks like that, you know? It's just amazing. That's God reaching out to you at that time. That's him giving you bread. Spurgeon said this, A mouthful of sea air and a stiff walk in the wind's face will not give grace to your soul, but it will yield oxygen to your body, which is the next best thing right? The Lord met Elijah in the darkness with bread. The Lord met Elijah in his darkness with a question. Look at verse 9. Then he came to the cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he has that answer, right? He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown on your altars and killed your servants with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life. What's really cool is the Lord comes back with the exact same question. Where are you? And you know, guys, I think you know this, that the Lord never asks a question to get information. Right? It's not like the Lord's like, Elijah, what are you doing here? You know, like, you look rough. What's been going on? No, that's not what he's doing, right? He, the Lord never asks a question to get information for himself. He always asks questions to give us information, right? You think of the way he asked Adam, where are you? It's a loaded question, right? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And then Elijah, what are you doing here? You can see how useful that question is. What are you doing here, Elijah? Does, does your darkness make sense to you? You know, what you're doing here, does this make sense? Is all this wandering around? Is, does what happened, is, are, are you thinking straight? You know, are things really as dark as you think they are? What are you doing here? The Lord meets us in questions. And guys, we have to learn to ask questions of ourselves too, Right? We should not assume that whatever our souls are telling us is true. Because we lie to ourselves more than anyone lies to us, right? We ought not to assume what our souls are telling us is true. Remember, depression is a perception problem. It tells us only half the story, tells us we're alone, tells us it will never end. None of that is true, right? We lie to ourselves, and so we need to learn to question ourselves and call out the lies we're telling ourselves. I love in Psalm 42, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Who's he talking to? His soul. He's saying, why are you cast down? He's saying, 
where, what are you doing here, right? It's a question for your soul. Don't accept that your soul, what your soul is telling you. Question it. You should doubt your discouragements, okay? The things your discouragements tell you, you should doubt them. You need to be able to preach to your own soul. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in uh, this book, Spiritual Depression, which is in our library, and you can certainly borrow it, great book on, um, on depression, um, his, his sermon series on that. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness is due to the fact that you are listening to yourselves instead of talking to yourselves? Let me read that again. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts you had the moment you woke up this morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They're bringing back problems from yesterday. Someone is talking. Who is talking? Well, yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he started talking to himself. And he said, why are you cast down on my soul? His soul was depressing him, crushing him. And he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Right? Don't you love that? Psalm 42. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then listen to this. He preaches to himself. Hope in God. Who's telling that? He's telling himself this. Hope in God. You will again praise him. He's saying it's not permanent. You will praise him again. Hope in God. My joy and my salvation. We need to learn to question our souls. And we need to learn to preach to our souls. Elijah was met by the Lord in his darkness with a question. And then lastly, the Lord met Elijah in his darkness with a voice. This is fun. Verse 8. And he arose and he ate and drank. This is in Beersheba. And he went in the strength of that 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So this is that 200-mile journey. And he came to a cave and lodged in there. So he travels 200 miles over a 40-day period. He's kind of meandering. I know that sounds like a long distance, but 40 days it's not. And, um, and he comes to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is not the most well-known name of this mountain. What's the most well-known name of Mount Horeb? It's Mount Sinai. Okay? It's Mount Sinai. So you see what Elijah is trying to do here. Elijah is hoping to see God. He's hoping to find God. He goes to this place where God has appeared before. He appeared to Moses. And it says in verse 9 that he lodged in a cave there. Um, those of you who are familiar with the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, you'll see parallels here, you know, um, with uh, Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock and Elijah being in this cave. In fact, the word there is a pretty general word. It could mean cleft of the rock. It would mean a hollow. So he's in this rocky area, kind of hunkered down, and God does something for Elijah that's very similar to what he did for Moses. Look at verse 11. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Okay, Elijah actually doesn't listen to this. Because in verse 13, it says that Elijah comes out of the cave later. So he doesn't actually do that, but he does at least come to the opening of the cave and look out. And look at verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by a great and strong wind, broke the mountain, and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord is not in the fire. This is amazing. This is a very unique storm. I mean, it says that there's a wind that tore the mountain, okay? This is a very unusual storm. It tears the mountain, and it's breaking rocks into pieces. And you, you have Elijah, and he's in this cave. He's looking out. He's in the safety of it. He's not going to be destroyed by this kind of judgment display of God. I mean, these are displays of judgment, right? Fire and a storm and an earthquake. These are, these are things that stand for God's judgment. And here he is in the little rock area, and he's watching all this happen. And can you imagine wind that can tear rocks? I mean, this is a crazy, harsh storm that's happening. And then it says, and after that, then there was an earthquake. How many of you guys have been in an earthquake? We live here, so this is the place, right? Some of you guys haven't been in an earthquake? Wow. We've got to fix that. So... Um, <laughs> 
they're, they're traumatic, right? I mean, it's like even a little one's like, this is amazing. Can you imagine having one of those happen on cue? That God would just speak and it rumble like that? I mean, those things, they'll go on for like three seconds and you think it was minutes. And so there's this earthquake. And then after that, the earthquake, there's this fire. And we know how destructive wildfires are, especially this time of year. There's this fire that goes up over the mountain. And it's amazing because if you look at pictures of Mount Sinai, this is a very rocky, not very tree-laden kind of place, right? And it's just being engulfed in flames. And it says, but the Lord wasn't in it. He wasn't in the storm. He wasn't in the quake. He wasn't in the fire. All of these were manifestations of God's power. But what he's saying to Elijah here is he's saying that I'm not mostly found in kind of the Mount Carmel type huge power displays. So I think a lot of times we think that. Man, if you would do like a Mount Carmel type thing for me, like I would go in that the rest of my life. It's actually not true. You know, those power displays. He's mostly not seen in these great power displays like Mount Carmel. How is the Lord mostly known? Look at verse 12. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a voice. It's weird Hebrew here, and it's very difficult to translate. And that's why you'll see every translator has their own way to do it. It's things like a low whisper, a still small voice. I love this one. A sound, thin, quiet, with periods. A sound, period, thin, period, quiet, period. Um, A sound of thin silence. A sound of a gentle blowing. So what you have here is there's a sound or a voice. There's a voice, but it's quiet. But you hear it, so it's not really silent, but the word is it's a silent voice. You know, so it's a really interesting thing. It's a a quiet voice. In, in, In verse 13, you see Elijah's response. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak, probably to protect himself from the presence of God, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. That's how we know he never came out. And behold, there came a voice from heaven saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He finally has Elijah's attention, right? Uh, It's the Lord meeting Elijah in the darkness with a voice. And ultimately, guys, that is where the Lord consistently meets us. He meets us in a voice. He meets us in his word. It's through his word. It's not usually through, and I do believe in miracles, I do believe in healing, and I do believe in all these things that God still does. But what's interesting is consistently where does he meet us? He meets us in his word. But that can be a process, guys. And I know for any of you guys that also deal with depression, you'll say, but that's the problem, Eric. When I'm depressed, I can't read. You know, and that's a common thing, right? That's one of the terrible things about depression is it, it makes it really hard to read. Not that we can't read. I mean, we can read. We can read a street sign or whatever. But to read and actually hear the voice of God in the Word becomes exceedingly difficult. And that's what's so painful about it. Here you've got this dark fog, and you've got this one light, and you're reading it, and it doesn't have a feel. That's the hard thing about depression. But I think what's going on here is the Lord met him in a bunch of different ways, right? He meets him with the, the walking. He meets him with the bread. He meets him with a question. And now he's ready to meet him in his word. Ultimately, that's where we need to be, um, is, is in his word, his word where he speaks to us. And I think that's what the Lord was doing here, is he was breaking down. This was the exact voice his depression wouldn't let him hear, and he's brought him to a place now where he can finally hear it. Doesn't that feel good? One guy on Twitter said this, and I just thought this was super helpful. He goes, one of the ways I know my depression is lifting is that I start reading again. And it's so true for me that it's like, finally, I can read again, and I can enjoy it, and I can take strength from it. The Lord um, meets us in our darkness with a voice, with his word. So often for me, it's the Psalms or 2 Corinthians. Those seem to be like, have the best, you know, on-ramps, you know, uh, 
Probably not going to get it in Romans, probably going to get it in the Psalms or 2 Corinthians, but the Lord has ways to meet us in his word. And that's what we really need, guys. We really need to take our eyes off of ourselves because it makes us so inward and turn it on ourselves. And we need to see God in the word. That's what we really need. We need to take our eyes off of our failures and our guilt and our very real problems and look at him. That's where we're going to find health. Robert Murray McChain said this, take 10 looks at Christ for every look at yourself. That is very good life advice, Right? Take ten looks at Christ for every look at yourself. With his voice, with his word, the Lord also shows Elijah that he's not alone and that God's purposes are not up to him. Because Elijah, had, there was, he felt alone and he felt like the world's up to him. Like God's going to work through him to save Israel and make everything good. And, and the Lord's telling him in verse 15, that's not the case. Take a look at it. The Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, which is a really long walk. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over, sorry, the first one was over Syria, and this one's over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaph, shall be anointed to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah's not alone. And he felt alone, he felt burdened, he felt like he had this great purpose in God's plan, and he had failed. You know, I'm no better than my father's, right? And the Lord tells him, you know what, this, this actually, you're not alone, and this isn't all up to you. you know, he's like, Elijah, did you really think? That my whole plan was up to you? Really? Like, I'm Yahweh. I can do this 10,000 ways without you. I'm letting you be a part of it, but this doesn't rest on you. He's like, I don't need you to defeat Ahab and Jezebel. I got people. You know, what people does he have? He has Hazel, the king of Syria. Okay, not a prophet, not a believer, not a nice person. Okay, do you know how this guy actually gains the throne? He suffocates his predecessor while he's sleeping. Okay, God can work through people like that to accomplish his purposes. He's like, this isn't all up to you. I got this crazy pagan king that can do this for me, right? And then he, and then he says, and then I got, I got Jehu, the son of uh, Nimshi, and he'll be anointed king over Israel. This is a feisty chap, Jehu. There's a lot of blood coming from this guy. This guy's going to wipe out Jezebel, and he's going to ride his chariot over her blood. I mean, it's very graphic. And then he's going to wipe all the rest of Ahab's line out. And then he says, and then there's Elijah. Elisha, sorry, there's Elisha. And he's all, oh, you know what, by the way, I found your replacement. You can imagine Elijah being like, you can replace me? Yeah, I told you, this isn't all up to you. I have a bunch of ways to accomplish this. And, and, and he says, you know, if, if they escape Hazelel, then Jehu's going to kill him. If Jehu doesn't kill him, Elijah's going to kill him. And then he says, oh, yeah, and by the way, I have 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. The Lord's telling him is that you don't have to feel alone and burdened. You're not alone. And your work for Israel isn't in vain because you're not the one called to finish it. You're called to do your part, and that's it. You're not called to finish it. He's like, Elijah, my kingdom doesn't depend on you. I'll accomplish my purposes for your joy and his glory in spite of your weakness. Isn't that amazing to hear? Don't you love to hear that you are not the solution for the world? That's a wonderful thing. Believers, God's eternal purpose to bless you, to make you happy in God forever, and, and give you a new world to enjoy it in, those purposes are entirely up to him. They are entirely up to him. Your weakness won't stop it. So whether you're right now, you're standing on Mount Carmel, and everybody's like, yay, or you're in Beersheba, like in the fetal position crying, God accomplishes his purpose either way. He accomplishes his purpose either way. God will bless you. 
no matter what. Because you're a part of God's plan, but you are not God's plan to save the world. That's what Elijah had to figure out. You're a part of God's plan, but you are not God's plan to save the world. Amen? Is that encouraging to hear? Is that good news? You might be like, I can't do it anymore. You weren't expected to. Christ is God's plan to save the world. You are not God's plan to save the world. And what's really cool is Elijah needed to hear this. He needed to hear that God's purposes weren't going to be ultimately met through him, but through another prophet who was to come, a prophet greater than Moses and a prophet greater than Elijah. And what's really cool is he got to see him. He got to see Jesus. Do you remember when? Do you remember when he got to see Jesus? Luke 9, 28. It says, Peter and John and James went up on the mountain to pray. Mountain, significant. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes were dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking to him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I love this. It says, James and, and Peter and John, they see him up there, and Jesus is like dazzling white, and there's Moses and Elijah, don't know how they knew, maybe name tags. And uh, he sees them up on this hillside, and they're having a conversation. How cool is this? So Jesus is talking to Elijah about, it says his departure. The, word, the Greek word there is the same word, exodus. He's talking about his cross, about the resurrection, about what he's about to do. You could just imagine Elijah has questions, right? He's, and, and Jesus is like, I told you I was going to take care of this. You know? And Elijah's like, are you doing it yourself? And he's like, yeah, of course I'm doing it myself. Do you think this was all up to you? I have this. I'm going to take care of this. Isn't that amazing? They were discussing how Jesus would be the true rock of refuge. Remember how Moses and Elijah both hid in a rock to, to be spared from that judgment display of God. They, they were talking there. Jesus was talking about how he would be the true rock of refuge. The one that Moses and Elijah and all of us have to take refuge in to be saved from the storm and the quake and the fire of God's wrath. That Jesus would be the one we hide in. As we're united with him, we've hidden in him. And when he was on the cross, he was enduring the, the storm and the quake and the fire of God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus experienced the true darkness that depression's only a taste of. And depression is a taste of hell. But it's just a little taste. Jesus experienced the real thing. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His perceptions were accurate. Right? They were accurate. He was enduring. He was alone, abandoned, forsaken, and damned in our place. Jesus took the storm, the quake, the fire of judgment so that we can receive the low whisper of grace. Right? He takes all the fire and the quake and the judgment so that we can receive the quiet whisper of grace. That all he asks for us now is grace if we trust in him. And it's so cool that Elijah got to meet Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's so cool to see, too, that it says Elijah was there in glory. Isn't that wonderful? Do you feel good for him? After seeing him in chapter 19, to see him in glory. And he's in glory, it says. What a difference. This man that was in deep darkness and discouragement and guilt is now in glory. And he's getting to look with his own eyes upon the one that is his rock of refuge. Just think, oh, what a wonderful ending for this guy, right? One day, you guys too, if you're trusting in Jesus, you'll meet Jesus, the rock in glory as well. You'll see him in glory. It would be great to be in glory. You'd be there without sin. You're going to have bodies that aren't even tempted to sin. Don't have that struggle anymore. Um, you'll have minds that are no longer tempted with fear and depression, right? That's a real treasure to some of us, right? You have perfect brain chemistry. 
That's what it means for, for people that wrestle with this thing. To be in glory, to be in a resurrected body, is to have perfect brain chemistry. To be freed to finally enjoy full joy in Christ and all that that world has to offer. And as we take the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that day's coming, right? Paul said, as often as you drink this cup, drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is for those who have come in darkness. And maybe you've come and you're in a good mood, and that's great. But if you've come in darkness this morning, it's also a place for you. The good news is, is that if you've trusted in Jesus as your rock of refuge, this morning, Jesus meets you the way he met Elijah, not with condemnation, but with bread. He meets you in the same way with bread. And he meets you because he wants to sustain you. If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, I'd like you to come forward during the next couple of songs. Take the bread, it represents his body. Take the cup, which represents his blood. This is the Lord, like he did with Elijah, inviting weary souls to come and be fed in his presence and to receive strength for the journey and to know that he walks with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, just this uh, really interesting servant of yours, uh, Lord. It'd be so uh, fun to meet him and uh, to hear of his adventures. And We thank you, Lord, that you didn't sugarcoat his life and that you showed him to us in his darkness, in his depression, in his sadness, when he couldn't grab hold of joy in you. And we thank you for that. Thank you for how that ministers to our soul. We thank you that you're the kind of God that will walk with us. You don't see us as a, a problem to be fixed, but a friend to walk with. And we are so thankful for that, Lord. Help us to see you. Open our spiritual eyes to know that you're there. Help us to reach out to you in all the ways that you're reaching out to us. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to ask questions of our souls. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to see you and enjoy you in the word. Lord, help us to make a regular pattern of hearing your voice in the words so that when we're in the darkness, your word will be in us and guide us until the darkness lifts. And I pray too, Lord, that we'd be the kind of people that would come along, people that are in darkness. I love this passage because it shows any of us can do this. We can walk with somebody. We could give a meal. We could ask a question. We could give a voice of grace. So we pray, make us those people in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.